Amen. Well, in 1944, Yugoslavia was a war zone, like most of Europe. But what was different about Yugoslavia is not only did they have the Germans who were oppressing them, but they had a civil war going on. It's part of the war that Americans usually don't know a lot about. So you've got two generals that are fighting one another in the midst of a war. And all Churchill cares about is who will kill the most Nazis. He's willing to support whichever side kills the most Nazis. That happens that one side of the Civil War was the communist, led by General Tito. On the other side, you had a general by the, by the name of Mikhailovich, who was more loyal to the king that had abdicated and fled and gone to England. But he was, he was generally just cared about his, his people. But all through the war, the, the communists kind of infiltrated the ranks of the British government and also our own um, government, even what's known as the OSS during the, the Second World War, the Office of Strategic Services, what we call the CIA today. And so you had communists within the ranks who wanted to support General Tito. And all the information that they would get, they would try to, to uh, say disinformation, any, any good that General Mikhailovich would do against the war, they would change that and say, well, General Tito actually did that. And then on top of that, the communists had put, uh, had, had convinced five British citizens to work for them. It's kind of like moles. They were very close to Churchill. So that they became known later. We know them now as the Cambridge Five, but it was, it, it was top secret for a, lot, for a very long, and actually the British government he didn't even realize this until after the war sometime. But these five were filtering the information that Churchill heard in order to influence the, the war there in, in favor of the communists. But while that is going on, you've got the Americans in Italy who are sending bombers over Yugoslavia to Romania to hit the German oil fields there. Because one way to destroy your enemy is destroy the ability to make war. So if you could eliminate the oil fields, get them out of production, the Germans don't have fuel to fight their war. But the problem was there's many mountains in Yugoslavia, and the Germans were in Yugoslavia with anti-aircraft batteries. And so there were a lot of U.S. airmen who were gunned down. Their ships were gunned down either on the way to the airfields or on the way back. And over time, there became quite a few of these airmen that were in German-occupied territory in Yugoslavia. Well, General Mihailovic protected these airmen even at the cost of his own, the lives of his own men even at the cost of some of the villages, because the Germans threatened to destroy an entire village if the airmen weren't given up. And all the U.S. airmen said, no, we'll go. We don't want that village to die. And General Mikhailovich said, no, you will be protected because we need you back in the fight to bomb the Germans. And indeed, the Germans wiped down an entire village. They carried out their threat. But Mikhailovich wouldn't give up the airmen. He got word to the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And they began planning a rescue mission for these men. But keep in mind, the communists were infiltrated. So every time the OSS needed to, they needed to drop some of their agents into Yugoslavia to make contact and begin arranging how to get these U.S. airmen out. But every time the OSS would send their, their crew, as a, a small team of three, in a plane over... Um, to, to jump over it, something would happen. They began, so these OSS agents began to suspect some sabotage. Finally, on the fifth attempt to get these men into Yugoslavia, they get over what they thought was a jump zone. The jump master, who was a British citizen, the jump master looked at the three men and gave them the, the go-ahead to jump. The lead agent grabbed the sides of the door and he should have just jumped out because the jump master told him to jump, but he paused and he looked down. And after he looked down, he thrust himself back out of the door, knocking both of the agents who were behind him down. And they asked him what was wrong. And he said, they're getting ready to jump 
getting ready to put us out over an active battle. If those men had jumped, they would have never made it alive to the ground. So on the sixth time, they decided to, to make it a very secretive mission. Not even the British, who controlled that theater, would know what's going on. They stole a plane. They recruited a pilot to secretly fly this plane with only U.S. citizens and only those that they trusted over Yugoslavia and were successful in actually landing in Yugoslavia and making contact. But just think about it. If that OSS agent had not paused, checked his surroundings, he wouldn't be alive. If he had just listened to, to someone he thought was an ally, but really was an enemy. He, that, that mission would not have been successful. And there are people in the church today, just like those communist sympathizers, and I'm not picking on communism here. It's not a political message. What I'm saying is that the communists successfully used a ruse to get their people into places so that they could carry out their mission of centrifuge and, and really getting the mission um, geared towards them. And that's what Satan does with his people. He puts people within the church who confess to be Christians, who say they're Christians, and perhaps do some of the things that Christians do, like go to church, read their Bible. But these are not Christians. These people are not Christians. And they seek to 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 cause people to follow them. They're seeking to lead people astray. And, and those people sometimes don't realize it until it's too late, until they, are, until they are turned away from the gospel. So Jude wrote to Christians in the midst of, of such a time. You know, we, we see in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And if you look at the description, which we'll get to later, these are not just wayward Christians. Right? These are people who are not Christians at all. And they're seeking to lead people astray. They're seeking to cause problems for the church. That situation's no different in our day. You could say that it's, it could be even worse. There are men and women today who give lip service to being Christians. All the while their lives are a mess. And so we'll get into looking at some of the characteristics of these uh, so-called Christians as we get through Jude. But what we need to hear today is that there are, there are false Christians among us who don't look like false Christians. There are false teachers among us who don't look like false teachers. I mean, I, I think I've said this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. False teachers don't come with a warning label like cigarettes or other things. Right? They don't come with a flag. That says, oh, you want to destroy your life? You want to, you know, you, you want to be taken advantage of? Follow me. Right? No, they, they don't. Right? They're going to look and sound like Christians. They may even adopt a certain amount of orthodox doctrine or lip service in order to lead people astray. And so Jude writes to, to help us, right? to help us contend for the faith, to realize that there are those type of so-called Christians in our midst. And with that, let's just read verses 3 and 4 of Jude. I won't read the whole thing this morning, but just, just looking at the message, verses 3 and 4 of Jude. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We're just, we'll be looking at verse 3 today. And verse 3 provides four fundamental features of your call to contend for the faith that you must embrace in order to be a faithful slave and using the analogy, a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. We are called to contend and be looking at four, four features of that call. Let's look at the first one. The first feature you must embrace 
is the importance of the fight. The importance of the fight. And I, and I, want, I want you to we're just take verse 3 kind of apart. He, he says there, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. Jude is letting his readers know that he had been contemplating a different type of letter than what he actually wrote. He was wanting to write a, a letter about the common salvation, the blessings thereof. The, the phrase, uh, making every, every effort, just means that th this was something that Jude had on his mind. He had on his mind a very positive, encouraging letter. There's no indication that he actually started writing that letter, and we don't have any other letters from Jude, so perhaps he never got around to writing that letter. But he intended to write. That's the one he preferred to write. And, he, and that letter was to be about our common salvation. What does he mean, our common salvation? Well, a salvation is just another word for deliverance. It really is a, is a broad term that speaks of everyone who has been saved by Jesus Christ. So what the, the salvation that he's talking about is, our, is that sal, com, common salvation. And the word common there is the Greek word koinonia, which you're familiar with. It's a word of fellowship or a sharing in. So it's, it's, a, it's a salvation that, and, that all Christians have in common. So he wanted to write about that. Jude wanted to write about the various ways that Jesus Christ had saved them, have had, that Jesus Christ has delivered, is delivered, and will deliver his people. For example, he, he delivered all his people from guilt to innocence. He's, he delivered uh, all of us who are Christians from, from error to truth. He delivered you from slavery to sin to freedom in the Lord. He delivered you from the domain of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. And he is delivering you from sin to righteousness in a practical sense. That's, that's the ongoing work of the Spirit to sanctify you. And he will deliver you from indwelling sin totally so that you're perfectly spotless in practice. That's your glorification in the future. And he will deliver you from the wrath of God to come. Those are just some of the ways that, that um, our Lord Jesus delivers his people. And this is what Jude had on his mind to, to, to kind of dwell on that and remind people of all the wonderful work of Jesus Christ in delivering his people. That's the letter Jude wanted to write. But that's not the letter he wrote. Why didn't he write that letter? Well, he, he tells us. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. There's a necessity. Now, the, the NASB and the LSB translate that felt. Don't think that Jude here is being guided by his emotions, okay? Talked a little bit about that on, on Wednesday. This is not Jude guided by his emotions. If he, wanted, if he was guided by his emotions, he would have written that positive letter. So this is the Holy Spirit working within him, compelling him to write a different kind of letter. He said he felt the necessity. It's actually the word is to have a necessity. He had to write. This is the same kind of necessity that Paul says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Right? So Paul had to preach it. Jude had to write this letter. That, that's what he's telling us. As a, as a slave of Jesus Christ, he had to write this letter. What, what was the necessity? Well, the Holy Spirit was moving within Jude to help him understand that his people, those that he ministered to, and we don't know these churches and Christians by name or location, but they were in danger. And we don't know how Jude found that out. Perhaps a messenger came from, from several of them. Perhaps he got a letter uh, requesting help. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us that. But he found out about their dire need and wrote the letter that, to help stir them to, to, to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. And, and that is what he ended up writing. So as we think about this, just realize that the fight for truth, the fight for the faith is so important that Jude had to change his intentions. He had to change course. The fight for the truth is so important that the Apostle Paul even confronted the most senior apostle, Peter, when he went wayward. 
I want you to see this. Go to Galatians 2 a minute. Now, Peter's no false teacher. But he was led astray to not deal with the gospel in a forthright manner. We see this in Galatians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. And here Paul uses the, the name Cephas for Peter. One of Peter's other names. But when Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came. He began to withdraw. And hold himself aloof. Fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He was confronting Peter and Praise be to God, Peter was humble and took the rebuke from the most junior members. I say that chronologically, junior members of the apostolic team. We know Paul was used mightily by God, so he's no junior among the apostles. But chronologically he was. But Peter was humble and received that rebuke. That's what contending for the faith looks like. If Paul hadn't Contended for the faith if he had shied away and said, oh, this is Peter. This is the leader of the twelve. I don't know if I should speak out. If he had done that, the hypocrisy would have gone on a lot longer. But he understood the importance of the fight, of contending for the faith. So if you don't contend for the faith, not only will you be disobedient, but people will be led astray. This is serious. This is why Jude changed his plans. Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he saw the importance. He wanted to write about that common salvation and rejoice in that and give, give, give the Lord thanks and encourage God's people. But he realized that common salvation was under attack. And there are people that would not hear about that common salvation, would not experience that common salvation if these false teachers were not confronted if people did not con, um, contend for the faith. And it's the same way it is today. God has you right where he wants you providentially in your workplace and in your families, in your neighborhood. And you're there to be his ambassador. And one of the ways that you are in his ambassador is by contending for the faith. Contending for the faith just doesn't just happen when we're gathered. Some of that does happen, but it happens in your workplace, in the places you live. You're his ambassador. So you must, to, to, to contend for the faith, you must understand the importance of it. It's more important than focusing just on all the positives. Right? It'd be nice to just focus on all the positives. It's a bit of a negative letter. Right? But it's important that we understand that there's a fight out there. There are false teachers out there. There are people seeking to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And we know that's not possible, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to lead you astray from the truth. If they can't pull you away from Christ, and they can't, they're, they're seeking to destroy your life with sin and confuse you about what the truth is. So the first fundamental feature of contending for the faith is that you understand how important it is so that you become a, a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ and carry on the work that he's called you to do. Now let's look at feature two. Feature two that you must embrace um, is, is that under, to understand that the demands of the fight. You must embrace the demands of this fight. Demands, the demands of, of what it means to contend for the faith. Now, Jude begins verse three with this word, beloved. Beloved. Now, some translations of the Bible make this, make this word sound like a, a simple greeting. Like they'll say, uh, dear friends. And, and so you could translate that way in the, in the Greek, but taking the context in mind, that's not what Jude is, is merely saying. He's not merely using a greeting like dear friends. He is using the term beloved very intentionally. In fact, he uses the word love three times. So three times in three verses, he references love. That's not a mistake. 
Right? Remember I told you that, that Jude likes triplets. He likes to repeat things three times. Right? You see that in verse 1. To those who are beloved in God the Father. Verse 2, he says, may love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, beloved. There is a theme of love building up to this exhortation to contend for the faith. This love is not a feeling-based love. It is an action-based love, as God defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is comprised of actions. Love is kind, right? And, and love is patient. All those are actions, not characteristics. And Jude wants his readers to, to, to catch the triple reference to love as, as they hear the exhortation to contend for the faith. Because love is essential to successfully and effectively contending for the faith. We, we can't contend for the faith without love. Now, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13, just a moment. We need a quick tour uh, or detour of 1 Corinthians 13 to see the strong language that the Apostle Paul uses about spectacular deeds done without love. Look at the beginning of verse uh, of chapter 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, that is that he's able to, to speak better than anybody else. He's, he's speaking in, in um, really just hyperbolic language, exaggerating. If he could speak the tongues of angels. By the way, you notice that anytime angels come to the earth, they don't need a translator. They, they speak in the language of the people that they want to communicate with. So, so Paul is using an exaggeration here. If I could speak the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I almost brought one in. If I had a cymbal, I would have brought it. And if I had a pot I could dent, I would have bought it. Because it helps you get the picture. How effective is communication, even if you're an eloquent speaker, if you have a noisy gong going on over here. What kind of preacher would I be if there was someone over here with a noisy gong just banging it, banging it, banging it? You couldn't hear me. It would be totally ineffective. It would be distracting. That's what he's saying. If you have superlative language, you don't have love. There's no net gain. Look else what he says. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy... By the way, he did have that gift. We believe the apostles had all those gifts. So he's, again, he's speaking in a, in a sense to help people building an argument right, for the Corinthians. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and there I think he's thinking of Jesus' uh, language. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed and say to this mountain, go, it'll, it'll go into the sea. Right? He's saying, if I have that kind of faith, if he has all the gifts to their utmost, to the, to the full extent that God gives them, if he has all that, but he has not love. And he adds to that, I, I, he said, but if, if, but if I do not have love, I am what? I'm ineffective? Well, yes. But, but he uses stronger language than that. I am what? Nothing. Nothing. The Apostle Paul? Right? The stalwart of the faith, the one who wrote so many letters of the New Testament is saying he's nothing without love. And, and then he adds to it again, looking at actions, not only just characteristics and skills, but actions. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So if you contend for the faith, you sacrifice, and you even die contending for the faith, but you have not love. It profits you nothing. You know, you've met some Christians who are kind of like that. They love to contend. They just love an argument, especially over the finer points of theology. They're just, they're just going after the other person. But we need to see that it's real easy to be a jerk it doesn't require the Holy Spirit to be argumentative. I mean, that's, that's the work of the flesh, not the Spirit. 
You might be able to win a war of words with nastiness. But you're not going to do anything effective for contending for the faith without love. If you want to be a faithful slave of Christ, faithful soldier of Christ, you must contend for the faith with love. That's that's really hard. In fact, I say humanly speaking, it's possible. It's impossible, humanly speaking. We, we need the Lord's help. We must be motivated by love to effectively contend for the faith. We've got to be motivated for the love that we're trying, the love of the person that we're trying to, that we're contending with. We, we, have to, we have to be motivated by the love of the flock of the church that we're trying to protect. And we have to be motivated by the love of God that we would represent him well right, as ambassadors for Christ. You know, we, we get that with ambassadors. We expect ambassadors to be dignified and, and have a certain level of, of polishedness to them because they're not representing themselves. They're representing the president. They're actually representing our country. Well, you are representing Christ. And if you contend for the faith in a bombastic and caustic way, that reflects poorly upon the Lord. And God said, it's going to profit nothing. Now, maybe by God's grace, something good will come of it. But, but Paul uses such string language to help us to see that we must have love. We must engage with love. And, and that is needed here. Jude is, is pointing that out. And that's why Paul brings this out again in Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, when he's talking about confrontation of error. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, he says, And the Lord's Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So that's our marching orders. Those are marching orders that Paul gave to Timothy, but they're not just for pastors. Jude is is writing to you, and he wants us to understand the fight that we're in must be fought with love. Now, go back to Jude. Jude writes to help his his, his readers to, to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith. You know, that's how it's word there. Contend earnestly. That you would appeal. He's appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith. We must con- con- contend earnestly. So what does it mean to contend earnestly? The, the word, that there's two words in, in English, contend earnestly. They're really a compound Greek word. Just one word. And and the simple form of that verb comes is we could say it's the English word agonize, agonize. That gives you a little bit of a, of an understanding what this word is talking about. It is talking about contending in an agonizing way. That's the it speaks to the to the level of effort, the level of pain that you must go to in order to contend for the faith. Now, the uh, one dictionary explains that this word means to, and I quote, to exert intense effort on behalf of something. To uh, exert intense effort on behalf of something. Another dictionary defines it this way, to contend strenuously in defense of. To contend strenuously. D. Edmund Hebert explains that the word was commonly used in connection with the Greek stadium to denote a strenuous struggle to overcome an opponent. As in a wrestling match, it was used more generally of any conflict, contest, debate, or lawsuit. Involved is the thought of the expenditure of all one's energy in order to prevail. This is a call to expend all energy. Strain. Now, I have an aversion to working out. I don't like it. I do it because it's good for me. It's an agony for me to work out. But with a frozen shoulder, some of you know I dealt with that. With a frozen shoulder, the pain of a frozen shoulder puts regular exercise pain off the charts. I know that I have to push my shoulder, stretch it to excruciating pain. And if I do that in the morning, 
then the rest of the day, it's much better. Right? What I'm doing is I'm pushing that range of motion. But I must push. If I don't exert that kind of energy and effort, then, then I start losing range of motion. That's the kind of agony and pain the Lord calls us to do, not in a physical sense. Jude is using the word contend earnestly here, not for a physical fight, but in a metaphorical sense to speak about a spiritual fight. This is, we are not in a physical war. The church is called to be soldiers of Jesus Christ, but not in a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And we know that because of passages like Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual war. Fought not in the charismatic sense of walking around just praying. Right? This, is a, this is a battle, a spiritual battle that's fought with truth. It's fought with doctrine. Paul emphasizes the spiritual nature of the warfare as well as his doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 to 6, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, Taking and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. So taking every thought captive, that's the idea of, of doctrine, right? You're, you, he's seizing upon false doctrine, replacing it with right and true doctrine. So Jude is calling his readers. And by application, you, if you're a believer today, Jude is calling you to contend Earnestly for the faith. The, the English word earnestly makes it sound like it's, it's more of a genuine. Earnestly means, really means striving. Give it everything you have. It's important and God calls us to, to fight that for it, fight that war. Now, this isn't something we, we do all the time, obviously, but it is something that we must do repeatedly. We must be on guard. And when God brings us into these circumstances through his providence, we must be ready to put forth much effort, even if it's painful. Right? Not, again, not physically, although certainly there are physical ramifications, like you've heard of the martyrs, right? So sometimes when the spiritual warfare goes forward, the, the enemy, Satan, rallies his troops to respond with physical force, and sometimes that means the death of the Lord's loved ones. So sometimes it does require physical uh, stamina and, phys and just enduring physical pain. We cannot live with a peacetime mentality here on earth. Right? We're grateful. In America, it's really easy to live with a peacetime mentality. We don't live in a war zone like they do in Ukraine or many other countries where they fear for their lives. In Nigeria, Christians live this way as well. But here in America, it's very relatively peaceful. We have some problems, but no one's... No one's, uh, we don't have guards at the door, armed guards at the door protecting us, right? And, and we can be very thankful for that. But spiritually, we must live with a wartime mentality. We must realize that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's not omnipresent. So he has his demons doing his work all over the world. And then they also uh, infiltrate and use human beings to be their agents to carry out their work. And part of that work is filling churches with false converts who seek to lead people astray. So you have to be discerning. Now, this doesn't mean we, we are always in a wartime mode, in a sense, because God calls us to be a peacemaker. So this call to contend has to be balanced with all the other scripture uh, commands of Scripture as well. But you are called to be a warrior when those circumstances call for it and that is when the truth is being attacked and assailed such that people could be led astray or you yourself could be led astray you are to battle for the truth so that the peace of god can prevail for the glory of god so let's look at the three we've seen two of the the first two fundamental features of this 
of this call to contend that you must embrace that you're a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. The third is this. You must embrace the scope of this fight. You must embrace the scope of this fight. Here, I'm just going to point out uh, Jude's words that he was exhorting that you contend. I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. Jude was writing to Christians. We've established that last time. Look at um, verse 1. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So Jude isn't writing to pastors. He's writing to the church. We know that from that description. So this is a call for all of us to contend for the faith. He's exhorting. Look at his word, exhorting. I make every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith or exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. All true believers everywhere, no matter their age, their maturity level, their culture, all believers are called to contend for the faith, to contend earnestly for the faith. And so Jude writes to exhort, to appeal. Um, it's, it's not just, it's, this isn't just a call to arms to those who are like in a fighting mood, right? Those probably shouldn't engage until you are tempered with a little bit of love. This is a call to all of us, even those of you who are really, have really sweet dispositions. And I'm thankful for you. You help balance out the body of Christ. You too must learn how to contend for the faith. You cannot back down right, when the truth is challenged. And there are many ways in which this is happening in our society today. So this call to arms isn't optional. That's the main point here. The scope of this fight is that it, it, it is to every believer. If you are in Christ, you are part of uh, the, the army of the Lord and you are called to contend for the faith. Now, some translations use this, the, instead of exhorting, they use appealing or encouraging you. Those words are fine as long as you understand that the encouragement and the appealing isn't optional. It's not like Jude's not, Jude is not saying, well, I'm appealing to you that if you happen to be in the mood and it fits you right, you can do, no. He's saying this is for everybody. You, writing to each, addressing each one of his listeners and by application us, you to contend for the faith earnestly. Every believer is in the fight for truth. And, and Ephesians 6 makes that clear. I've referenced that already, but just turn there a minute. Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Right? Why would you need armor if you're not in the fight? Right? This is, again, addressed to all of us. All of us are in the fight. We need the armor. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And he says, pray on my behalf. We are all in this war. That's Jude's call. What, what does this look like? I want to give you an illustration of that. Turn to Acts 13. Acts 13. Gives an example of someone contending for the faith. None other than the Apostle Paul. So chapter 13 begins... By the Holy Spirit telling the church in Antioch to send Barnabas and, and Saul, so called Paul, out for the work of the ministry. So verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. 
And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul. Just pause there a minute. We know him as a false prophet because the scriptures tell us that. Did he have a label? No. He sold himself as the real deal. Remember that? He sold himself as the real deal. So he was, the, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Right? That's what false teachers do. They seek to turn people away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, you and I aren't an apostle. We, we can't contend by, uh, in, in a, such a way as to, to call down on the hand of the Lord someone to be blind for a time. But think about the mercy of God in that. He could have struck that person dead, that false uh, prophet dead. He gave him time, just a time. He'd be blind for a time. But we are to confront truth. And, and that's what Paul does here. He, he told this false teacher that he was lying. And you know when people are lying because you have the word of God. So lovingly, you must tell people they're a liar when they're spreading false doctrine. Or you must warn others if they're listening to false doctrine. You and I must contend for the faith to cut off the opportunities that false teachers have within the church, within your family, even within your workplace, God has you there as his ambassador. Yes, you're there to work. You're not, you're not paid to be a missionary there. So do your work faithfully as unto the Lord. But while you're doing that, be an ambassador for Christ. Be careful what books you read. Be careful what blog posts you read. Remember, if it's true that there are false teachers within your midst in, in the local congregation... And I'm not saying there are here. I don't know of any or I would talk to you already. Right? What, what I'm saying is in general, there are false teachers within the church and they don't look like false teachers. If that's true in a local sense, how much more true is that in the Internet, in the wild, wild world of the Internet? There are no police there. Right? Well, there are some, um, thankfully. But what I'm saying is doctrinally, there's no doctrinal police. People can write whatever they want. And some sites make it really confusing because they have some good stuff. But they also have some really bad stuff. Like the Gospel Coalition's website. There's some really good articles on there. There's some faithful men who write on that website. But they are also false teachers on that website. And the problem with the Gospel Coalition is they refuse to draw any kind of boundaries or limits doctrinally. It's a big tent. I say that not to cast them down, but to warn you. So if you're reading articles in the Gospel Coalition, you might find something very positive and very true and accurate. Praise God for that. But not everything on the Gospel Coalition's website is sound doctrine. There is actually false gospel on there there are people pushing crt there are people pushing lgbtq agendas there are people who are pushing other things on us there's wokeness which is an attack on the gospel so just to warn you they are out there you must realize that you are called to battle for the truth and this really this really hits hits home right where you're at right someday in america they might come after pastors because we're the leaders but right now, we're not the target of the attack. You are. Do you realize that? You are the target of the attack of the enemy in your workplaces. They're bringing wokeness in. 
They're bringing CRT in. They're bringing LGBTQ in. Now, I'm not saying you're there as a, as, in a, as a warrior for the company, against the company. I'm not saying that. Don't misunderstand me. You are a warrior for the gospel. What that means like, what that looks like in your life is you cannot embrace, you cannot condone, you, 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 you cannot um, uh, do anything that gives an endorsement to LGBTQ agenda. You can't endorse it as a Christian. I mean, I say that. You're not going to lose your salvation if you do, but you're going to be unfaithful to your Lord. To contend for the faith means you've got to work out that, that truth, that battle right there where you're at. Uh, the wokeness that comes in. Right? Again, you're not there to change the company. Right? But you are there to be an ambassador for Christ. And you have to understand there are, there are lines that you cannot cross if you're going to be faithful to our Lord and our God. Right? And, and does that mean it might get unpleasant for you? Yeah. But you just go back. Remember what we're talking about. Strenuously contending. It's going to cost you something. Don't worry. The Lord will reward you. If you get fired... Don't don't be um, <clears throat> excuse me. Don't be like the person I was talking about before the argumentative person. Okay? Remember, be filled with love, okay? and ask God to fill you with grace as you confront doctrinal error. Okay? You know Christians, right? At least people who call themselves Christians who embrace some of these things. Help them to see from the scriptures that these things cannot be. And again, I'm not talking about, and we'll get to the last point here. We're not talking about every minute area of doctrine. Right? This is not, this kind of fight is not something you do, you know, in disputing about what was the thorn in Paul's side. Right? This is not even something we would, we would uh, uh, fight over some of the, some of the minor or secondary points of doctrine. Kind of get ahead of myself. So let me just give you the, the, the fourth feature. The fourth feature that you must embrace is the object of the fight. We move from the scope of the fight, that's every one of us, to the object of the fight, which is the gospel. He says that you contend earnestly for what? The faith. He doesn't say for faith. If, he said, if, if it was written for faith or for your faith, he'd be talking about the subjective faith, that faith that you place in Jesus Christ. By subjective, I don't mean that it's not genuine. What I mean is that you exercise that faith. That's what I mean by subjective. It is that faith that saves. That faith is a gift of God, as we know. But this, this faith that Jude is talking about, he says, the faith that definite article shows us that he has something objective in mind. It's not the subjective faith. It's something objective. And that is the gospel. In a nutshell, the faith is the gospel. It is the apostles' doctrine. You have the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the gospel of Christ to come and a salvation to come. You have the apostles' teaching, which is built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. So that is the doctrine. That's the doctrine we're talking about. And the term the faith is used this way throughout scripture. I'll just give you a few examples. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The faith. It's a body of doctrine. They're becoming obedient to to the faith, that is, to the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. This is Paul giving a testimony of, of his own growth as a Christian. He says, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but only that kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now proclaiming good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy. Paul was proclaiming the good news of the faith. Again, the faith. One more, Acts 16, 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were abounding in number daily. Uh, throw in one more, Acts, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. I'll give you one more. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So Jude exhorts you to contend earnestly for the faith, the gospel, the body of sound doctrine, 
which was handed down as a prophesied of the, by the Old Testament prophets that was taught by Jesus Christ and that was developed or, or fully explained through the apostles' doctrine. And, and Jude goes on to describe this. If you go back to Jude, Jude goes on to describe this as, a one, as the faith as once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all handed down to the saints. So look at the timing of this, of this faith or this, the, the giving of this faith. It's once for all. Now that once for all is not talking about like the, the scriptures themselves. Because Jude wrote, we think, pretty sure that Jude was written before Revelation. So there was still Revelation and the Gospel of John yet to come. So Jude isn't saying that everything that has been said is all that's going to be said. What he's saying is it's once for all in the sense that it's unchanging. Anything written after that has got to agree with the apostles' doctrine and the gospel or else it's not scripture. The gospel is unchanging. It's unmanipulated. If you manipulate the gospel, you come up with a different gospel. And, and, and that's what Paul was worked to try to guard against. The source of this faith, it says it was handed down. So Jude doesn't specify. But, it, but the implication is God handed it down. God is the giver of scripture. He is the one that handed it down. He gave the gospel. It's unchanging. It doesn't have to be adapted for every culture. And look at the recipients of the faith to the saints. So Jude here is using the analogy of like a, a, um, a manager who manages someone else's property. God gave the saints this body of doctrine, the gospel, and we are to protect it, guard it, um, use that doctrine to, to um, nourish our own hearts and help us to grow in Christ. But we will be charged to guard that doctrine. And some of you might say, well, are you sure he's talking about to the, to the church, to the saints? Well, keep in mind that 1 Corinthians 1-2 helps us know beyond a doubt that the term saints refers to living Christians, people who are really Christians, not, not to those who like have dead and have gone to heaven and uh, like the Catholic Church who want to define saints. These are, these are real saints. 1 Corinthians 1-2, you can look that up yourself. So we can conclude that the, that the body of doctrine, the body of unchanging doctrine that taught by the, the, the prophets and the apostles, that, that, that Jesus Christ himself is a cornerstone, is what you're called to guard and protect. So contending for the faith means contending for the gospel. It's, it's contending for the gospel so that people could experience that common salvation. This means that we must guard the, doc, the, 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 the doctrine of the gospel like, like Paul did. We see example of this in Galatians 1. Galatians 1 verses 6 to 9. He says, I marvel. Talking to the Galatians, a bit of a rebuke. He says, I marvel. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you. Let him be accursed. As, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel must be believed, must be proclaimed, must be guarded and protected. And some of the, some of the things that are going on right now run contrary to the gospel, like critical race theory, like wokeness, like even LGBTQ issues. Though they are sexual issues, they are at their core gospel issues. Contending for the faith means, means that we fight for the gospel. As I was saying earlier, it doesn't mean that we anathematize or we condemn people who disagree with us on minor points of doctrine or important but secondary points of doctrine. For example, we would not fight the, the, or contend um, for baptism in the same way we contend for the gospel. Now, I believe in believer's baptism. I believe that's what Scripture teaches. I could teach it with great conviction, and we practice it here at this church. But I can have fellowship with someone who believes the gospel but has a different view of baptism. We may not be part of the same local church, but I can call him my brother. 
And I can fight shoulder to shoulder with him in a foxhole for truth. That's what we're talking about. You, you don't get spun up on secondary matters of doctrine. Right? Even if they're important. And I think baptism is very important. But it's not one that we would anathematize somebody or condemn them as a, as a heretic just because they have a different view. And really, Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 15. If you would just turn there for a moment, 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us some indication that there are doctrines of first importance, which means there are some of secondary importance. 1 Corinthians 15. Just begin reading at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he lists others that he appeared to. You see that the gospel is of first importance. That's Jude's call. Because when you get, uh, it's contending for that first, that first importance of the doctrine, of the doctrine of the gospel, the gospel itself. Because when you get to Jude, He's going he's gonna, to, that's what he's calling us to do. Because when he starts talking about these false teachers and those that have crept in unnoticed, you'll notice from the description, that's not a description of believers. This is a description of those who are unconverted and are seeking to lead others astray. Now, let me just speak a minute to anyone here this morning, to those who are here who are not converted. It is of first importance that you believe the gospel. That you believe that Christ died for your sins. And, and that he was in the grave dead. And then was raised in newness of life. It shows that he paid all the penalty for sin. For all those who would ever believe in him. It also shows that he has the power over death. He has the power to grant life. And will grant life to anyone who calls upon him. Who believes in him. It is of first importance that you believe this. Because without your conversion, you are not delivered. And if you die today, you will die in your sins. The Lord is merciful. And he wants you to, to call upon his name. Please call upon his name today. Don't put that off. Don't consider it to be something of secondary importance that you can just put off another day. Do it today. Spurgeon often said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Meaning, procrastination, if you procrastinate, it's just not going to happen. And that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. Procrastinate. Do it today. Trust Jesus today. He is so merciful. He will not turn you away. He will adopt you into his family. Now, beloved, Jude gives us these four fundamental features of our call to contend for the faith that we must embrace in order to be faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ. We must embrace the importance of the, of the call, the, the demands of the call. That is, balancing love with, with that really just uh, all-out effort to contend. We must embrace the scope. That it involves all of us. There are no reserves. There's no one on the bench. We're all in this together. And we must embrace the object of this call to contend. That is the gospel itself. You know, elders must hold fast the faithful words so that they're able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's a requirement. But you're to follow in their footsteps. You're to follow their example. You must also hold fast the faithful word so that you can teach sound doctrine and, and refute those who contradict. Don't be led astray. Now, I started the, the, the sermon with a story about... OSS agents trying to rescue downed pilots. That, that's a true story. And you can read about it in the book, The Forgotten 500. It's called The Forgotten 500 because over 500 airmen were rescued alive. And many of them couldn't walk, so they couldn't be walked out. I won't ruin the story for you by telling you how they did it. But it is one of the most fabulous 
I would say, spectacular uh, rescues. And the Germans never caught on. And the fact it was so successful, because they, they could only get down a few at a time, it was so successful they ran multiple missions all year long and rescued over 500 airmen and put them back in the fight, those that weren't injured. They, you know, they did, were able to do that because they were on guard against those within the ranks who were not supportive of the mission. So be on guard, beloved. Be on guard. Hold fast to the gospel for the glory of Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord God, thank you for giving us your word to guide us, to tell us what is true, to help us to know what is true, to help us understand the gospel. Lord, help us to understand it well and to hold fast to it, teaching it to others and guarding it, protecting it, refuting those who contradict, contending earnestly for the faith. Give us much wisdom in this, Lord God, much grace and, and love. Lord, it is so hard for us to, to contend in such a serious matter with an attitude of love. But Jesus, you did that perfectly. And just ask that you would lead the way for us. That through your spirit, you would grant us the love we need to do exactly that. To hold forth the truth, to contend for the truth while being ambassadors for Christ, representing you, the God of love. 